John chapter 6, starting in verse 48 through 56, and then picking up in verse 60 through 69. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that no one may eat of it. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds upon my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be seated. My wife Emily and I had the privilege the second half of this past week to participate in a marriage conference with other church planners throughout the country that we're connected to in a network. And this was led by a man named John Cox, who's fantastic. We've been to some of his uh, marriage and parenting things before. We'd love to bring him here within our midst, as a side note. Um, as you can imagine, there were various topics that were covered, and there were things that were really fun and delightful. There were other aspects that were challenging. In many ways, it felt like going to the doctor, right? And having things analyzed, examined, and then, you know, diagnosis, prognosis, etc. Um, one of the things that John Cox talks about with regard to intimacy and communication is he exposes the reality of how we often relate with other people just in general, and then even more specifically in marriage with our spouses. And he said, often relationships work like this. There is some sense where you have interaction with a person, let's say at a drive-thru, right? And so he calls that, you know, the, the literal example of a drive-thru becomes the indicative way of, that we relate with people. You know, we have some relationships with people that are drive through relationships. Maybe people you see regularly on the street but don't really ever even talk to, uh, people that you brush elbows with in your office but don't really even have a conversation. These are drive-by relationships. And then he says the next level of relationship is what he calls NSW, 
news, sports, and weather, right? We have, the, we have these other relationships with people uh, that our relationship with them is primarily characterized by conversations about news, sports, and weather, right? Um, and then, and, and of course, these things happen in marriage as well. He said the next level of relating with people is what he calls TCB, taking care of business, right? Um, relationships get to a point, and this definitely is true in marriage, where you are more than drive-by, uh, you are more than news, sports, and weather, um, but you are primarily characterized in the realm of communication and connection in this area of taking care of business, right? Okay, what's the schedule today? Who's picking up the kids? What time do they have soccer? Who's got violin? Who's doing drop-off here, Right? What did you say? Do you have a work meeting again? Okay, what are we doing this for dinner? Okay, I'm going to cook this. And that ends up dominating the vast majority of our relationships in general and then specifically in marriage. But he said the goal in marriage is not simply to have a drive-by relationship and not simply to have a new sports and weather relationship and not simply to have a TCB relationship, but the goal in marriage is to have an abiding relationship, an intimate connection with another human being where you know and are known, where you truly know and you are truly known. And this is not just in marriage, by the way. This is the goal and what we long for in any relationship is to have this abiding, intimate connection that is characterized by, among other things, Truly knowing and truly being known. One marital therapist named Murray Bowen, who's the father of family systems counseling, says, Few people can talk personally to anyone for more than a few minutes without increasing anxiety, which results in silences or talking about others or impersonal things. And what he's saying is the goal of a relationship is to be able to be in a relationship where you have a non-anxious presence, where you can connect with a person, when you can talk about things, or you can talk about you and your relationship and not simply talk about impersonal things or talk about other people. It's pretty convicting, actually, when you think about it. You think, well, okay, in marriage, we're pretty much TCB at best. And then when we do sit down and get together, we pretty much talk about impersonal things or other people. But you long for more, right? You long for deep connection and intimacy. Once again, even if it's not marriage, if that's not who you are, this is what you long for in a real relationship. Well, what I want us to see this morning from John 6 is that this is the type of relationship Jesus is calling us and the people of his day to. Jesus, in John chapter 6, is calling people to a deep and lasting life that is lived out in a relationship with Him. Christ is calling us to a deep and a lasting life that is manifested in this abiding relationship with Him. He's calling us to deep connection, to oneness. If we really want to know Him, we are connected to Him in the way that He is actually connected to the Father that we talked about in John chapter 5. 
If you are like me, chances are you like the idea of that more than the reality of that. This is true about me, I confess, just in general, for better or worse, probably worse, but I'm an idea guy, and I struggle to be a reality guy. I'm really drawn to the concepts. I'm really drawn to dream and create and to conceptualize. I love the whiteboard. I struggle with the sidewalk. That's my, the bridge between the whiteboard and the sidewalk. I love ideas. It's hard for me oftentimes to live in reality. This has been problematic in a number of my relationships throughout life. I think about my relationship with my younger brother who I'm really close with. He will perpetually get frustrated with me about working people into a frenzy, even if it's something like going to see a particular movie or going to a particular restaurant or having ideas about a fantastic trip. But then when it gets down to, okay, let's start planning this out, at that point I start to fizzle. I just like creating the idea of doing this, but the reality and the work it takes and and the manifestation of that, I oftentimes start to get lost. And that's what these people in John chapter 6 are dealing with, with Jesus. You see, the term disciple is a pretty broad and a loose, loose term that literally might just mean physically following Jesus. And so there were these crowds that were physically following Jesus because he was a miracle worker, because he was a good show. He was pretty fantastic. There were other people that were drawn on some level to who he was and what he said. And at this point in John chapter 6, Jesus starts to clarify for them. He starts to bridge the gap between idea and reality. You've got this idea, as if Jesus says, of what it means to follow me Let me tell you the reality of it. And I don't mean that to sound sharp or harsh because the reality is this is good news. You see, our idea of Christ is one thing and the reality is actually better. But our fear is that it's not, right? That's true about me. There's something within me that is errant that believes the idea is more compelling than the reality. You see this manifested all the time in relationships. I particularly think uh, about those who are single. And, and of course, having worked with college students for many years, I saw this manifested all the time. But this is definitely not characteristic only of college students. But have you ever heard the phrase, friends with benefits? Right? And of course, that most often refers to some sort of intimate or sexual connection with a person without any commitment. But that's not only true in the realm of sexuality, that's just true in the realm of all relationships. On some level, we have to confess, because we're selfish, we're looking for friends with benefits. We're looking to buy without money. We're looking to receive without any cost. We all, spiritually speaking, I think, want an honorary doctorate, right? We don't really want to put in the work. I mean, a PhD, like you have to learn other languages and stuff, right? You have to read. You have to write. It takes years. I'd rather just be famous and get an honorary doctorate, right? And that's what we want. It seems 
spiritually. It's hard for us to grapple with this concept of true and deep lasting connection. And we wonder why social networking is so popular, right? It's not wrong in and of itself, and and we can rage against it all we want. The reality is it has become a clear part of our culture. It's in the fabric of our existence. Some can avail themselves more uh, to it than others, but no one really can avoid it. And it's not wrong in and of itself, but it starts to become problematic when social networking becomes our relationship, right? It's a distant one. It's a new sports and weather. It's a taking care of business. It's a projected relationship with other people. I was reminded recently of a comedy routine in which Chris Rock talks about dating. And he says, you know, when you date somebody and when you meet somebody, you're not meeting them. You're meeting their representative. Right? Um, And that's true about all things, about all relationships. And what Christ is wanting to do in John chapter 6 is say, hey, I want to be real clear. This is not my representative. This is the real deal. This is who I am. And who I am is speaking really to who you are. And who I am is calling you to this. Deep and lasting life forever. So let's look a little more specifically at what I'm going to call Christ's proposal of deep and lasting life, which comes out of this statement that He is the bread of life. So we're going to look at Christ's proposal or His offer, and we're also going to look at the response that they and we have to this proposal. All proposals warrant a response. And the proposal that Christ is making is, you will find in me and only in me deep and lasting life. Let's unpack more what it means to find deep and lasting life in Christ. And then let's look at their and our response to this proposal. We didn't read this, but in starting in verse 35, Jesus, after feeding the 5,000... John chapter 6, by the way, is a pretty fantastic chapter and in many ways could be a sermon series in and of itself. Some of the most well-known miracles happen in John chapter 6, like feeding 5,000 and walking on water. But after Jesus feeds the 5,000, he keeps with this theme of bread and himself and feeding. And so we see in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever drinks from me shall never thirst. And then in our text, coming from that statement, we have Jesus saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. What in the world does that mean? Let's look at it. First, It means that Christ is calling people to have faith in Him. To eat Christ, knowing that Christ is the true bread of life, that He satisfies our hunger and He satisfies our thirst, He calls us to eat Him. 
to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. Which, by the way, sounds as odd and maybe offensive to the people that were hearing it as it does to you this morning. It maybe just sounds odd to us. It sounded very offensive to them for Jesus to speak in this way, which Jesus, as a side note, was never afraid to be offensive. So he says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you really want this deep, lasting connection and life. And so part of eating my flesh and drinking my blood means that you have faith in me. And faith is summarized pretty well in verse 47, which is a verse just before our text this morning. Christ says, amen, amen. I want to tell you something very important. The person who is simply trusting has deep, lasting life. Faith is simple trust in Christ as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. And it's important for us to realize that this is a call to faith at this point. It's not a call to action. Also in this passage earlier, Christ says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him... God the Father has set His seal. Then Jesus said to them, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them this way, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So you get these disciples like, Hey, this sounds great, Jesus, we want to know you. Tell us what we need to do. And isn't that the human response always? We are human doings much more than we are human beings. And God is trying to restore us to who we really are, which is not human doings, but it's human beings. And if we're going to eat Christ's flesh and we're going to drink His blood, we're going to have faith in Him. And faith is synonymous with trusting and believing first and foremost. We are saved, as the reformers have historically taught us, By faith alone. Of course, we also know that faith that saves is never alone. But let us not get it wrong that we are saved by faith alone. So eating Christ's flesh and drinking His blood means having faith. It also means abiding. And the most simple way that I can define abiding for us, which is a concept that's seen throughout the Scriptures, and then very specifically in chapters like John chapter 5, to abide means to remain. To abide literally means to find your home in. So if we're going to eat Christ's flesh and we're going to drink His blood, we're going to exercise faith, belief, and trust in Him that He is who He says He is. We also are going to abide in Him, which means we're going to find our home in Him. That He is in us and we are in Him. We looked in John chapter 5 that Christ can do nothing apart from the will of the Father because the Son perfectly finds His home and remains in the Father. And then through that, Christ calls us to that same abiding relationship. That we remain in Him and find our home in Him. Abiding is manifested in dependence. That's what I even prayed in the pastoral prayer. That apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Saying that and living that is abiding. 
But here's the good news about abiding. We are not simply called to abide in Him as if we have to be the ones that keep up the relationship. The text tells us explicitly and implicitly that God abides in us. That He is the first abider. He's the first mover. He's the first lover. We love because He first loved us. We abide in Him because He has first abided in us. And that abiding in Him manifests itself in our lives. I've mentioned before, but I love the image, if you remember, a Gatorade ad from a few years back that ran really for years. And they would show two athletes most often uh, participating in something in black and white, whether it be a volleyball game or a tennis game or a basketball game, and they would start to sweat. Or they might, you know, skin their elbow Uh, on the ground, and then they would start to bleed, and they would sweat, or they would bleed, and they would bleed a different color, and the color they bled was the same color of Gatorade they had just consumed, and the slogan was, is it in you? Because if it's in you, it will be manifested out of you, and that's what abiding is. Christ is saying, if you really want to eat my flesh and drink my blood, if I am really in you, you will see me sweat out of you. You will see me cry out of you. You will see me bleed out of you. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, we have faith in Him, we abide in Him. It also means that we suffer with Him. And we'll get to more of this in a minute, but this is one of those realities that definitely is encapsulated by, at best, We like the idea, but not the reality. But this is so hard that we probably don't even like the idea. At least this is where I distance. Like this idea of, oh yeah, the faith in Christ, I like that idea. Abiding in Christ, I like that idea. Suffering in Christ, hmm, I don't even know if I like that idea. But unless we become familiar with this idea, we're not going to become familiar with Jesus. Because Jesus is characterized as the suffering servant. Jesus is the man of sorrows. And if we want to know Him, if we want to be in Him, if we want to taste of Him, it means that we live and we taste and we have to embrace suffering. Paul in Romans chapter 8 at one point says, do you want to experience the glory of Christ? And that's when I'm like, I'm all in. The glory of Christ sounds fantastic. And it's as if Paul says, there's one thing that I need to let you know about the glory. You also have to taste the suffering of Christ. And that's real relationship, right? It's a both and, this glory and suffering. And so if we want to eat Christ's blood, or if we want to drink Christ's blood and eat His flesh, we have to suffer with Him. It's amazing what kind of bonds can be formed in suffering, is it not? And Jesus is calling us to that bond with Him, calling us to this deep, lasting connection. There's nothing like being in the trenches with somebody in life. And Jesus is calling us into the trenches with Him. So we eat His flesh And we drink His blood, we have faith in Him, we abide in Him, we suffer with Him, and then it also means that we live with Him. We see this in verses 53 
and 54. I'm going to read these. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you actually have no life, ultimately. If you do eat my flesh and drink my blood, do things like suffer, have faith, abide, not only do you have life, you have life eternally. That's also what it means to eat Christ's flesh and to drink His blood. One commentator says it like this, eating and drinking thus appear to be a very graphic way of saying that men must take Christ into their innermost being. Do you know what it's like to have Christ in your innermost being? So we eat Christ's flesh and we drink His blood. That's the proposal. By exhibiting faith, by exhibiting abiding, by exhibiting suffering, by exhibiting and embracing true life. And then finally, on this point, We eat Christ's flesh and we drink His blood by partaking in the Lord's Supper. This is the most literal and physical application of this statement that has clear connection. Different commentators will dialogue about how, how specific or literal the reference here is to the Eucharist in this passage. Notwithstanding, at minimum, there's implicit reference here to participating in the Lord's Supper, if not just all-out explicit reference to eating Christ's flesh and drinking His blood means participating in the Lord's Supper, right? We don't believe the bread and the body in our tradition doctrinally to literally be Christ's blood and His body, nor do we believe that it becomes literally Christ's body and His blood. At the same time, we don't believe that Christ's body and blood at this table manifested in bread and wine is simply a remembrance. What we do believe is this is when we feast upon the spiritual presence of Christ in a way that is mysterious and in a way that is real and in a way that is transformative in a way that is a means of grace. We believe literally, bodily, physically, when we take that bread and when we drink that wine, it transforms us. It knits us more closely to Christ. It is a physical manifestation of the gospel where we touch and we taste And we see, and we can even smell. And you know what you're touching, and you're tasting, and you're seeing, and you're smelling? Grace. And we're not just spiritual beings. We're physical beings, and we're bodily beings. And we need to feel, and we need to touch, and we need to taste, and we need to smell the gospel. And I don't have any idea why Christians would not want to do that Every time they gather. I get that it's logistically challenging. You can ask the people that stand back in that kitchen early in the morning and fill those glasses. Right? But we do that because it's eating Christ's flesh and drinking His blood in a very 
palatable way. It knits us to Him. Well, that's Christ's proposal. What do people do with it? There's two responses here, more briefly than the proposal. I want to look at the response. The first response is rejection. You see, this rejection starts in verse 60. I would turn your attention to it. When many of his disciples, and remember disciple in a broad term, heard it, they said, hmm, this is a hard saying. Who can even listen to it? And you know what? They were right. If Christianity is easy for you, let's talk. Because it's not easy. It's rich and it's full. But it's not easy, which actually makes it good, right? I had an early mentor and boss um, when I was younger in college who had all these different phrases, and most of them were really good, and I remember a lot of them. And one of them was, Brent, if it was easy, anybody could do it. Sometimes he said that shamefully. Other times he said it with inspiration. But I've never forgotten it. And it's as if Jesus is saying, yeah, here's the deal. If this were easy, anybody could do it. If this were easy... Who needs the initiating powerful grace of the Father to draw, not drag people to Him? If this were easy, anybody could do it. So these people are hearing Jesus correctly when they say, hmm, this is hard. It's a hard saying. It's hard to hear. It's actually offensive to hear because presumably most of those hearing were Jewish. And among other things, they had all kinds of ceremonial laws that they were tied to that they believed saved them, that they found their righteousness in, things like not eating or drinking blood, like meat with blood in it, no medium rare. And Jesus lovingly doesn't care and lovingly offends them by saying, hey, look, let me tell you something. You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and this is not easy. It's good. But it's not easy. It reminds me of G.K. Chesterton's famous quote. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting or lacking. It has been found difficult and therefore left untried. But Jesus is saying, here it is. And they were offended. Verse 61 goes on. To say, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, are you offended at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's as if Jesus at this point is saying, look, if you're offended at what I'm saying right now, you have no idea the amount and the weight of offense that's getting ready to happen when I go hang on a Roman cross. And I give my flesh and my blood for the life of the world. You want to talk about hard. You want to talk about intimate. You want to talk about good. You want to talk about being offended. Michael Wilkins says, They were following Jesus because he was an exciting new miracle worker and teacher. 
They had made some kind of commitment to Jesus, but when his teaching did not conform to their expectations, they left him. They were only loosely attached to the movement. And if we read this and we focus so heavily on they, you are missing it. Because the truth is, we all are drawn to Jesus, whether ultimately, continually, in part, or fully, because we think He exists to meet our expectations. And guess what happens when He doesn't? And then we wonder why we struggle to regularly avail ourselves to the Word, or to regular, regularly avail ourselves to corporate worship. Or to live lives of righteousness that manifest things like the fruit of the Spirit. It's because we formed this Savior, as Pascal would say. God created us in in His image and we've returned the favor. And when He doesn't meet our expectations, it creates a rift in the relationship. Because we inherently are thinking, wait a minute, here was the deal. Like I got like a jail pass out of hell, and then everything just pretty much works out, I don't know, kind of like the American dream. And Jesus is like, I don't know where you got that. But that's not what it's about. And we really do have to check ourselves how much of our relationship is built upon Christ meeting our expectations. Tim Keller talks about, he's a pastor in New York City, He talks about being in a conversation with a person that was exploring the truth claims of Christianity. And he mentions this in his book, The Prodigal God. And he's talking about distinguishing between uh, the reality of grace and works and and merit and and lack thereof. And as he's espousing the truth of that, this woman follows what he's saying and rightfully says this. um, Or he said to her, I asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace. She replied something like this, if I was saved by my good works, there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner, saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, there's nothing He cannot ask of me. And that's weighty, and that's hard, but that's good. But these people, it was enough. They tapped out, so they rejected him. Then the last we end with this, verses 66 through 68, and I'll paraphrase. So Jesus said all these things. He made this offer, some rejected, and then he turned to the 12. And I think this was not rhetorical, by the way. I don't know for sure. Obviously, I wasn't there. Can't ask Jesus right now. I don't think this was a rhetorical question. I think this is a genuine question as Jesus was grappling with and as they were grappling with the weight of what he was saying. And he turned to his closest friends and he said, are you going to leave me too? Like, is this too hard for you? Can you bear the weight of what I'm saying? And then Peter, who often was a spokesman for this group of apostles, said, no. And I love this. Where else do we have to go? Only you have words of eternal life. It's almost as if Peter's saying, look, 
I, we don't really love what you're saying either. And I think that's true. And, I, and, and like, I want to encourage you as Christians. I don't know if this will encourage you or discourage you. This text is an extremely strong apologetic for me, personally. I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of doubts. I don't see all the answers that I feel like I need in Scripture. And oftentimes, I end with this same confession. Look, I've looked at other options. I've explored other things. As hard as it is for me to say this, I really don't have anywhere else to go. And by the way, God's secure enough to handle that. It's not as if we're like, well, I asked everybody else to the prom and they said no and you're the only one that said yes, so... Like, Jesus can handle this. Because I think Peter understood. If there was somewhere else, we would go. But like, what are your options? Like, having a chronic illness is really, really hard. That's going to make you question the existence and the love of God. But what's your other option? Losing a loved one is unbearably difficult to deal with. And you have no way to reconcile that in your mind. But what's your other option? chance Peter gets it and he says we don't have anywhere else to go because you're the only one that has words of eternal life and Jesus is saying that's right because all these things that are hard and that are difficult right now hence the word eternal like I'm creating a new life where those things won't exist Do you believe me? Do you accept me? C.S. Lewis in The Silver Chair records this incredible interaction uh, between Jill and Aslan. And you would know that Lewis wrote, much to Tolkien's chagrin, uh, Aslan is analogous to Christ. J.R. Tolkien didn't like that he did it, but C.S. Lewis, I guess, didn't care that Tolkien didn't like. And so Aslan is Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia. And at one point, Jill has this interaction with Aslan. And it reminds me of Peter's interaction here at the end of this chapter. And we'll close with this. Are you thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. He just said it. I dare not come and drink then, said Jill. You will die of thirst then, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we're dying of thirst. We're hungry and we're hurting, evidenced by many wet eyes in this room at this moment. 
We pray that you would find us, that you would satisfy us, that you would save us, either ultimately, if we've never been there before, or continually, that you would build us up, that you would allow us by your grace to eat your flesh and to drink your blood, to exhibit faith and abiding and suffering and walking with you, and that we would find great comfort in knowing that there is no other stream. We pray now as we move to this great moment this morning where we do eat your flesh and drink your blood, that you would empower us. Thank you for this story and this text and the reality that you put before us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.